Good morning. It is good to be home. There's uh, whenever I go on a on a trip, <clears throat> long trip. One of the first things I do when I get back is uh, yeah, I get the kids settled down, bring the the luggage in or whatever. But one of the first things I love to do is just go to my room and just like lay down in my own bed for the first time. And when you do that after a long trip, there's just a sense of feeling of warmth and comfort. You know, it just it's kind of a, a unique thing. And so that same feeling is a feeling that, that we've gotten as we've been able to, to be here, uh, be back in Winter Haven. We've been in Winter Haven for about two weeks. Um, and it's just been, just been a, a huge blessing, a huge blessing to be able to come and be worshipped uh, through Holy Week here. Um, it's, just, it's just a great feeling to be back. We've really appreciated you guys throughout the year that we've been in Nicaragua. It's been a huge encouragement to us, you guys. Uh, one of the neat things was that before we left, we had a commissioning service. Many of you were there, and uh, there was a time where people were allowed to, to write a little note to us uh, for spe- special occasions, for your birthday, when things are going rough. Uh, and so, so it's, been, uh, it's been neat when there's those birthdays, and our girls get to say, oh, you know, let's open the card, or every holiday. I was like, oh, let's see, let's see who wrote us the card this time. And then there was these pictures that were with it, and uh, that's just been a really amazing source of encouragement. In fact, I've kept a few still unopened. We're just waiting for the right time to be able to read them. And so, so we love you guys. It's great to be back. Actually, the only hard thing about being back was, was we probably weren't back long enough, so we didn't get to spend um, as much time with everybody as we would have wanted to. Um, so I hope, I hope you ladies that you can come tonight and see Amber spend time with her. Um, and hopefully next time we come back, we'll be able to, to give it a little bit more time. We're excited to have a, a few a few guests with us. Um, there's a girl, Bethany Alms, who's actually in children's ministry, who's helping out uh, there with the upper elementary kids, who is uh, itinerating, raising funds to go to Nicaragua. She's going to go work with the Lathrops on the farm, uh, teaching English there. And so, so we're really excited about that. When you go pick up your kids, be sure to uh, say hi to her. She's the blonde girl you don't know. <laughs> so, um, so if you see her, just say hi. We also have uh, some good friends of mine, the Terriacs, that were able to come, and they have a farm in Nagarote, where they, um, which is a part of Nicaragua, where they have a heart for pastors training. We've been able to partner with them some, and so it is a joy to see them today. And, and so, if you want to talk to Nicaragua about Nicaragua to some other people, you got the Terriacs, you got Bethany. Of course, we'll be, we'll be here too. But um, last week, Jonathan taught us a little call and response. I don't know if you remember that, but as he is risen. All right, see, that's good. So now I want to teach you a little Nicaraguan call and response. And it goes like this, quien vive, which means who lives, and the answer is Cristo, which is Christ. So, quien vive. Cristo. Oh, good, that's nice. Much better than first service. You guys have had your coffee, so that's nice. <laughs> asu, and then the next part is a su nombre, to his name, and the answer is gloria, so a su nombre. All right, now put it all together. Quien vive? A su nombre. Gloria a Dios. That's what they do in Nicaragua. So as Presbyterians, we have everything well in order, and we have a specific time in our services for call and response. In Nicaragua, things are a little different. That just happens whenever. So spoiler alert. 
it's going to come back up. There's going to be a test later. Um, so we've been in Nicaragua for a year now, and when I went there, I knew pretty much zero Spanish, so I could ask where the bathroom is, but when somebody told me, I didn't have any clue what they were saying. It didn't, didn't really do me any good. Um, so, so when you go to a new country, new place, and you're, you know, you're learning the language, you make some mistakes. And for the most part, the mistakes are harmless, you know, they're just kind of funny, like... Uh, we had a team actually in Nagarote where we put on a pastor's conference. I was giving my first sermon in Spanish. And um, what I meant to say was, Jesus died for your sin. And the word for sin is pecado. But what I actually said was, Jesus died for your pescado, which means fish. <laughs> and so... While I'm sure it's true in a sense that, you know, Jesus' death helped the fish out as well, that really wasn't uh, the heart of what I was trying to communicate and get across. So now there's a town in Nicaragua that knows me as Tony Pescado, but I don't mind because it sounds macho to me, you know. That's Tony the fish, like a gangster, you know. So missionary and mercenary are very close as well in Spanish, so it's possible that they have no idea why I'm there, you know. <laughs> they just know, don't mess with Tony Pescado. <laughs> Sometimes those mistakes can be a little, a little bit more dangerous. Uh, we bought a car when we got there. Cars are, it's kind of weird, cars are unusually expensive there, so we had to buy a 92 uh, Toyota Land Cruiser, and we had to get a lot of repairs on it. I mean, the, Roads are rough there. If you've been to the farm uh, with the Lathrops, you know that. And so I had to take it into the shop, and it was going to be there for a few days. We didn't have a, a second car at the time. And so um, take it, drop it off, and uh, I had to call a taxi to, to get me back. And so in preparation for that, a couple of days before, I went to my friend TJ and I asked him, you know, do you know any taxi drivers that that I could talk to and get to pick me up. They're trustworthy. So he said, yeah, he gave me the information. So I dropped the car off. I'm waiting on the side of the road, and I call the taxi cab driver. Uh, my Spanish at that time was really bad. Uh, my phone Spanish, because it's different, was even worse. And he was driving with his window down, you know. So this is, this is just an interesting experience. And so I say, hi, I'm TJ's friend. Can you come pick me up? at the mechanic and told him where I was at. And he said, yeah, yeah, you know, I'll be there. So I'm sitting there and I'm waiting. And uh, this other guy walks up in Nicaraguan who could speak a little bit of English. And he says, uh, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm just, um, just waiting for a taxi. You know, I just had to drop my car off. And he says, well, it's really dangerous for foreigners here. You shouldn't be waiting on the side of the road. And so I know what you're thinking. How did he know that you were a foreigner, right? I get it. I mean, like, right, I'm rocking this shirt. I mean, I know. To an untrained eye, I might appear Nicaraguan, but when you're immersed in the culture, you kind of can tell a little bit, and they actually have a word for people like me. It's chele. I, I don't think it translates directly, but it basically means white guy. And they'll yell at you at the market, hey, chele, chele, chele. And so 
So here I am, Shelly, waiting for my taxi in a dangerous part of town. And now I'm scared, right? So anytime somebody walks by, I'm like checking them out. Hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? Don't mess with me. Tony Piscato here. You better know what's up. And then Amber gives me a call and she says, hey, I was talking to TJ's wife. Uh, your taxi cab's not coming. So apparently what had happened was when I called and I said, I am TJ's friend, he thought I said, I'm your friend TJ. And as soon as we hung up and he started coming to his way, the real TJ called that day and says, hey, can you come pick me from, up from the airport? Taxi cab was like, I thought you were at the mechanic. He's like, what? No, I'm at the airport. And he thought, crazy Chele, you've got the money, I'll go to the airport. So they, Amber says, but don't worry. He called somebody else, and they're on their way to pick you up. And so now I just had to sit there waiting. And you know, the longer you wait for something, the, the more you doubt that they're actually going to, to show up. Now, it turned out okay. I didn't get mugged. I wasn't murdered, obviously, although it would make a better missionary story if I was and I was still able to come back and preach to you today. <laughs> that was not the case, luckily, for me. Um, and so everything worked out fine, but I'm, sh- I'm sure you understand that feeling of, of doubt that comes with waiting. Like you go to a restaurant, it's a party of eight, you're the first one there, and you're waiting for everybody to show up, and the waitress keeps on checking on you. I thought you said eight people were going to be here, and you're like, they're coming, right? I hope. And this is the same sense of waiting that the early church had. Uh, when Jesus ascended to heaven, they were expecting him to come quickly. They were expecting it to happen soon. In fact, Paul uh, talks about wanting to go to Spain. And the reason why he wanted to go to Spain was because, in their mind, that was the ends of the earth. And so Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. And there's an ocean there. And so they thought, we're going to get this thing done, get to the ends of the earth. Jesus is going to come back, and it's going to happen quick. But then it started to take a longer period of time. People started growing old. Some people started dying. And, and, and there was this confusion. Is Jesus coming? And so that's the passage that we're going to be looking at today in 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Let's just pause there. So they're here, sitting here, the Christians are sitting there waiting, and these scoffers come, and they're teasing them, right? They're making fun of them. They're saying, Jesus, he's coming back. You, you really believe that? Bless your heart. You know, they, hey, how, how quickly is he going to come back? Do I have time to go get tacos? I mean, is he gonna, am I going to miss out? And they're waiting. But, but they don't just make fun of them, right? They also say something else. They say, All things are continuing as they always have since the fathers fell asleep. Here's what they're saying. They're saying, none of the sacrifices you've made have meant anything. 
At this point in time, Christians have, have lost jobs, they've lost business, they've lost family members, they've been beaten, imprisoned. Uh, people think that Second Peter was written in prison right before Peter was about to die. And so, so people are dying for Christ at this point, and these scoffers come along and they say, it hasn't changed anything. Everything has continued as it always has. And I think sometimes we can feel the same way, right? I mean, we, we look out in history. It's been 2,000 years. We're waiting for Jesus. And sometimes we look into, into civilization. We say things are only, only getting worse. And maybe we feel like, you know, I've been, I've been giving my life to church. I've been giving money. I've been giving time. I've, I've tried to witness to friends, and I've lost friends because of that. i tried to witness to family members, and I'm estranged from them because of that. What has that even counted? Nothing has, has changed. I, I know for me, it feels like there's certain times in my life and, uh, that Christians talked about the second coming a lot, that that was something that, that people were excited about and looking forward to, and now it feels like that's tapered off and it probably goes in waves, but, but it's almost like we're a little bit embarrassed to talk about our hope that Jesus is going to come back. We're feeling the same way as they did in Peter's day, where the longer we wait, the more we doubt. So here's how Peter addresses them, starting up again in verse 5. For they, being the scoffers, deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that had existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's saying God is not slow, he is patient. Now, sometimes if we're running late to something, I try to use that excuse with Amber. It doesn't work that well. You know, I'm like, I'm not being slow. This hair doesn't do itself, right? I mean, I'm just being patient. She doesn't buy it either, you know. But, but, but for Peter, it makes sense. For Peter talking about God uh, being patient, it makes sense. Hey, and he's pointing to this reality that we're actually living in an in-between time. Uh, you don't have to turn there. I'm only going to be there a second. But in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus is talking. He's looking, uh, talking about the destruction of the temple, but he's actually looking past that to his second coming. And he says this, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. He, he's saying, look, this gospel has to go everywhere. And what he's doing is he's tying together missions with eschatology. Eschatology is the theological word uh, we use to describe the end times when Christ is going to come back. And he's tying those things together. This has to happen, and then this will happen. The gospel goes out, and then I come back. And if we fast forward to Revelation, in chapter 7, starting in verse 9, it says this. 
After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Who's praising God for salvation? People from all nations, from every language, from every people. And so what we see is that Jesus said, this has to happen, it has to go out everywhere, and then I'll return. And then in Revelation, that's happened already. It's it's done. People have gone out everywhere, and now they're all all saved. And so we live in this in-between time where we're told that that the gospel has to go out But Christ hasn't returned yet. He hasn't finished it yet. And so, obviously, if if, if that's what God's waiting on to return, then the question becomes, how are we doing? How how is this mission uh, unfolding? I think, on the whole, it's going remarkably well. Uh, There's still work to be done. There's no doubt about that. Uh, In fact, there's still places... Uh, where they've never heard the gospel. Uh, places like the 1040 window, which is, which is um, if you look at a map, it's northern Africa into the Middle East and into parts of India, China, and Japan. It, it, there's, there's virtually no Christians there. Uh, you can be born, live, and die and never hear about Christ. In fact, there's even new tribes that are popping up in Brazil and in, and in Indonesia that have never had interactions with people yet. And so, so there's still work to be done. But... But obviously, there has to be a place that, that's last because we live in time. And on the whole, if we look back at what we have accomplished, it's pretty remarkable. And what we see is that Peter's saying that God's patience is so that, everybody, you know, that people can come to him. It's just, that's coming true. This is what's happening. So if you think about it, the church started in Jerusalem, right? And then it grew into North Africa and Southern Europe. And then eventually it turns north and it goes throughout all of Europe and it's brought over into the new world, into North America. And by 1800, 99% of Christians lived either in North America or Europe. And that can seem kind of slow, that it took 1800 years to to get that much uh, land, uh, to get that, that area. But I think if you consider the technology at the time, the modes of transportation, we didn't even have the printing press for most of that time. I mean, it's pretty remarkable, the growth. And then around that time, it is with the age of exploration, people started to, to really understand that there's all sorts of other people in the world, and they need Jesus too. And so there, that was the start of the modern missionary movement. And, and you know, some people say that, that missions was just kind of a tool of colonialism. And, and in some cases, that might have been the case, especially with South America and some of the Catholic Church tie-ins. But for evangelical Christianity, that wasn't the case. In fact, the companies that owned the ports wouldn't let ships dock if they had a missionary and would have to let them off. The ships would have to let them off before and they would have to row to land because they didn't want the natives to become Christians and to become humanized by being Christians. But what happened was Christians exploited the technology of their day and they used colonialism to spread the gospel throughout the world. So that now, 75% of the world's Christians live outside of North America and Europe. In 200 years, that's been the change. 
There's another set of numbers that I think are fascinating and encouraging. When the church started in 100 AD, there was 300 unbelievers to every believer. But by 1900, that number was 21 to 1. In 1970, it was 13 to 1. And today, that number is 7 to 1. So, so do you see what's happening? Not only is the church growing geographically and numerically, the rate in which it's growing is increasing. So things are starting to happen faster and faster and faster. When we consider Bible translations, uh, Wycliffe, who's the, the major Bible translating organization, is using new technology and new techniques to cut the, the time it takes to translate the Bible into a new language in half and sometimes even more than that. So that it's not unthinkable that in 20 to 30 years, uh, there'll be a Bible in every language. That, that we might actually see that. There's another kind of neat trend. Uh, our agency, Mission to the World, calls it everywhere to everywhere. And what's happening is countries that used to receive missionaries are now sending missionaries. So as we work in Nicaragua, we're working alongside South Korean missionaries. It's not uncommon for there to be Costa Rican missionaries or Brazilian missionaries. It's not uncommon to hear about Filipino or Chinese missionaries. Things are starting to happen quickly, and change is happening quickly. I think Nicaragua is a good example uh, about this. A, a lot of us, when we trace our, our roots and our theological roots, we, we think back to the Reformation and, and Martin Luther and when he was nailing his 95 Thesis into that door, in Nicaragua, they were still throwing other humans into the volcano to appease their pagan gods. In fact, evangelical Christianity wasn't around in Nicaragua until 100 years ago. So to kind of wrap your mind about what 100 years ago looks like... I, Raise your hand if you know somebody, one of your family members or something, you know their name, who served in World War II. And we should see a lot of hands here because we actually have a World War II veteran, Warren Savant, who is here and who attends our church. Can we just give him a hand? Because that's pretty amazing. What a, what a great treasure to have in our church. It, my, my grandfather served in World War II. His name was Rance, and he was born in a little... Nowhere, West Virginia, called Mammoth, West Virginia. His little town, he was born in 1915, about 100 years ago. His, his town um, had two, at least two evangelical churches. And so when you think about it, his little town, 100 years ago, had two evangelical churches. His, his county had even more. And so when he was born 100 years ago, there were more churches, evangelical churches, preaching the gospel in this little county in West Virginia than there were in the entire country of Nicaragua. I mean, it was assumed that my grandfather would hear the gospel and know what's going on with the Lord, even though no one born at the same time in Nicaragua would have heard that or have that assumption. Yet in that time, in that 100 years, the church, the evangelical church has exploded in Nicaragua. So whereas 100 years ago, when the people you know who served in World War II, when they were born, there was nothing. Now, when you go there, uh, there's evangelical churches everywhere. In the valley that the Lathrop's works, there's at least six or seven in this small valley. It, it, it's, it's pretty amazing. In fact, the government's taking notice of this. So politics is different in Nicaragua? 
um, obviously. And one of the things that's different is that they give supplies to the church. And so they used to only give supplies to Catholic churches because that was just about all that there was. But they started to realizing the growth of the evangelical church and how they were becoming powerful. And so now they're splitting their giving and they're giving some to the Catholic church and some to the evangelical church. It, it's growing. It's part of demographic change. And so what's happening, though, is as it's growing wide, it's still really shallow and legalistic. And so what our work is, or at least part of our work, is to to catch up with the growth in the church there and to help it grow not just wide but deep. And so one of the things that we're doing is, is theological education. And so what we've done is we've gotten a full theological program from an organization called Third Millennium Ministries, and uh, they put, we were able to download it, put it on an SD card, and give them tablets. So our first generation of pastors that we're training, they all, all got tablets. And, and we didn't just give them the tablets and tell them, you know, just go study it on your own. But we're organizing them in learning communities so they can grow in unity and they can grow talking about it and, and discussing it and challenging each other. Um, this whole system, in the United States, that level of education would probably be tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, this system with the SD card and the, the tablet is $55. But one of the things that we're realizing is, is this is even too bulky and, and too slow and too expensive for the rate in which we want to do it. So we're trying to think through different strategies, different ways to spread the training. And so, so one of the weird things about the third world in, in Nicaragua is that everyone has a cell phone. So that's just like everywhere now. And so this is a, a Nicaraguan cell phone. I went and I, I asked them for their cheapest phone, and it cost $13. And so if you think about your first cell phone, and when you had your first cell phone and you got bored, you played a game. Anybody remember that name of that game? Snake, right? Okay, Serpiente is the entertainment available on this phone. This is that level of phone. But what's amazing about it is that it has an SD card slot. So we're able to take the SD card, $15 SD card, put it in their phones. They can listen to the training, get trained theologically. Um, If they have a little bit better phones, they can watch it. And the purpose of all this is that as they're growing, they're growing deep and they're maturing. And as the church in Nicaragua matures, then they'll send more missionaries out. And as other places kind of that were unreached start becoming mature, they'll send missionaries out. And it'll be this big cycle, and things will start changing quickly and quicker and quicker and quicker. And so that now it's not unthinkable that we would see the day when the Great Commission is complete. And if not us, probably our children in the children's ministry. And if not then them, almost certainly their children will see it because things are happening rapidly. But sometimes it can feel like um, all the exciting things are happening out there, right? It feels like, man, God's doing amazing work in China. He's doing some great things in Nicaragua. But, but when we turn on the TV, when we talk to our neighbors, when we look at what's happening, it, it can be really discouraging here. And that's why I think the words of the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 are so powerful and so encouraging. It says this, 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great, so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's saying, look to all the work that God's done. Look at history of how he's changed so many lives and what he's all done. Look at what he's doing all over the world and know that he's doing that there. He can do that here. That God hasn't abandoned us. He's sitting at his throne and he's still king. And to take hope, to stay in the fight. I would say it this way, be like Castro. Now let me just pause. I'm not talking about Fidel or Raul. Um, as some of you know, I'm half Cuban. My mom actually came to America from Cuba with her, with her mom, my abuela. And uh, my abuela passed away a few years ago. And if I was encouraging you to be like Fidel Castro, she would just appear right next to me like a Jedi Knight and just, just beat me right in front of you. Like that's, so I'm not saying that. I'm not talking about him. Um, of course, I'm talking about the famous Nicaraguan Andres Castro. And uh, the story for Andres Castro is this. Um, after the Civil War in America, uh, under a guy by the name of William Walker, they, he decided, you know what? We've got a bunch of guns. We've got a lot of experience. We don't have anything else to do. Why not go down to Central America and conquer it and rule it like kings? And so that's what they did. They, they went down there and they started conquering uh, Central America. And there was a particular battle in Nicaragua where the, they were fighting uh, Nicaraguan farmers, campesinos. And the battle was going bad for the Nicaraguans, and they started running out of bullets. And this one man, Andres Castro, jumped out in front, and he picked up rocks, and he started throwing rocks at the enemy. And his act of bravery, of staying in the fight, helped encourage all the other Nicaraguans, and they won that battle. And today, if you go into a government office in Nicaragua, you'll see a famous painting of Andres Castro with his hand back, with a rock in his hand, and, and he's fighting the enemy. And it's, it's a really inspiring painting. And it's a little awkward for me because the bad guys were Americans, but, you know, that's just the way it goes, I guess. But to be like Andres Castro. Now, just another little caveat here. I know we have some younger people here and just... This is not what I'm talking about. Don't go out and get a rock and throw it at your unsaved neighbor and Viva Nicaragua! You know, like, like that's, not, uh, that's not what I'm encouraging uh, you to do. I'm encouraging you to stay engaged with the work that God is doing in the world. You get newsletters. Obviously, we're from this church. It's easy to get our newsletter. Um, there's other missionaries that our church supports. The Lathrops, who are also in Nicaragua. The Brocks, who are planting a church in France the Toves who are in uh, Uganda, find out what they're doing and, and be praying for them. You can go to Mission to the World. That's our denominational agency. Find out what God's doing there. Go to Wycliffe, the Bible translator. Find out what, what God's doing there and join in the fight through prayer. Because if we serve a living God, then our prayers actually matter, right? And you can stay engaged in the fight to be like Castro. But not just over there, also here. 
right? Because the same God who's doing amazing things all over the world is the same one who's still living and active in Winter Haven. So stay engaged with your neighbors, with your family, be praying for them, be witnessing to them, stay engaged and have faith, right? Because, because we serve a living God. Quien vive? Quien vive? A su nombre. A su nombre. See, see, why glory? Why do we say glory? We say glory because he lives, right? Because he lives. Because he came down, he was born as a man, lived a sinless life, and he went to the cross. And on the cross, he took our sin, he took our shame, he took our punishment, and then he died. But he didn't stay dead, right? That was Easter. That's what we celebrated. He rose from the dead. He went to heaven. He sits at the right hand. He sends the Holy Spirit to empower us in this work. And one day it's going to be complete, and he's going to come back. And listen, today there are scoffers, but in that day there'll be no more scoffers because in that day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Quien vive? A su nombre. Here's what I want you to, to walk away with today. is the confidence and the joy that even though we wait, he's coming. Even though sometimes it looks like things are bleak, He's winning. You know, I even love the fact that we have communion today because sometimes it's hard to, to really stay engaged and really to believe, and then we have communion where you get to, where you get to touch, right, the, spiritually the body of Christ, and you get to, you get to drink his blood, and, it, and it's his promise, right, that I give you this, but I'm going to come back. And so I hope you go today encouraged, in faith, knowing that the God who's working in the world is working here too. And even though sometimes the world tries to shame us for our faith, when he comes back, he's going to give us a crown. We've got to throw it at his feet. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you did not just leave us here waiting, but you sent us your Holy Spirit to work through us. I thank you that you still are ordering the events of our lives and in the world, and that um, you're not surprised by anything that happens, but that you're waiting patiently, biding your time for the lost to come to you. And I thank you that one day you will return, and in that joyous day we'll be able to see you come and set everything right. Lord, give us new hope today. Renew our, our energy for the fight that we would stay engaged through prayer with faith, knowing that you who are doing amazing things in the world are still alive and working in Winter Haven. In Jesus' name, amen. But now please receive uh, the Lord's benediction. These are God's words for us and over us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.